0: Hey, everybody. I don't know if you've heard, but we have a book coming out. Finally, finally, after all these years, it's great. It's fun. You're going to love it. It's called Stuff You Should Know, an incomplete compendium of mostly interesting things.
1: Yep. And it's 26 jam-packed chapters that we wrote with another guy named Nils Parker, who's amazing and is illustrated amazingly by our illustrator, Carly Minardo. And it's just an all-around joy to pick up and read. Even though we haven't physically held in our hands yet, it's like we have, Chuck, in our dreams so far.
0: I can't wait to actually see and hold this thing and smell it. And so should you. So pre-order now. It means a lot to us. Uh, The support is a very big deal. So pre-order anywhere books are sold.
1: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know,
0: a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
1: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryan over there, and this is Stuff You Should Know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What does this got to do with the Olympics?
1: It's it's equally stirring. I thought you had done the Olympic Games song. That's what I started out doing, and then about two duns into it, I realized they could not bring it to mind, so I just went with the Rocky theme instead.
0: Uh, you know, what? the Olympics, well, I don't know. if they Would they still be going on right now? Or would they be um, over?
1: I don't know. They could have just wrapped up, actually. It's kind of sad, you know? It's sad for now. It will be encouraging later. I think the Tokyo Olympics, whenever they happen, are going to be a global coming together and celebration of beating coronavirus.
0: Yeah, totally. They'll have to redo those uh, ceremonies.
1: Yes, but from what I read, the Olympic flame is still alive and well in Tokyo.
0: What if the opening ceremonies had little, you know, corona crowns? Running around and people smashing them with like big inflatable hammers. And <laughs> That's
1: right. <laughs> the they tell the story of the yeah. of the coronavirus <laughs> pandemic through interpretive dance. It
0: just has like a big giant
1: bat at the beginning, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly.
0: It's the villain. Oh man, oh, there'd be plenty of villains in that one. That'd be fun
1: for sure, for sure. Um, so we're obviously talking Olympic torches. If you hadn't guessed or hadn't bothered to look at the title of this episode, everybody. And I'm kind of excited about this because it's it's a just dyed-in-the-wool S-Y-S-K episode in that it's very niche. Yeah. It's about one specific thing that's a part of a much larger thing which we've not yet done an episode on.
0: Yeah, and the kind of thing where one day when you're watching an Olympic ceremony again, mm-hmm. you see that flame.
1: Yeah. You'll have that,
0: uh, that insider knowledge.
1: Yeah, you'll think... Dun, da-dun, 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 da-dun. Oh goodness. So um, Chuck, uh, I didn't know much about Olympic torches. I've seen a, a torch lighting or two in my time <laughs> on television only. yeah, um, but there's a pretty, it's pretty interesting, actually, the, the, the kind of the history of it and how the things are made. I was reading over a like, a, I guess you'd call it like a request for proposal. A PDF from like the London Olympics Committee Mm -hmm. from years ago, um, basically saying, hey, this is a call out to all designers who want to try their hand at at, um, designing the London Olympic torch. Here's all the details you need to know. It was really fascinating stuff. And we're going to convey that fascination (laughs) post-haste.
0: Of that RFP or of just... (laughs) Olympic torches.
1: (laughs) Maybe a little bit of both, actually.
0: (laughs) So uh, the history of the torch, we're talking, you know, you got to go back to Greece if you're going to talk about anything Olympic history-wise. And if you go back far enough, you're going to hear a story about Prometheus stealing fire from Zeus, giving Mm -hmm. that to humans. That's how they say we got fire. Sure. And in order to uh, commemorate that, the Greeks had these re- relay races like we all know and love, except instead of passing a little aluminum baton, mm-hmm. they would pass live fire and flame via torch.
1: Yeah. They would set a cow on fire, push it to the next person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I Actually, the one thing on Prometheus, I was looking him up. So he was punished by Zeus um, for stealing fire and giving it to for humans. being a bad boy. And for, yeah, a naughty Monty. <laughs> And um, he had his liver eaten out by an eagle every day, and because he was an immortal titan, his liver would grow back each night, oh, and then nice. it would be eaten out eaten mm-hmm. by an eagle again the next day.
0: That's how I feel these days.
1: <laughs> <And> eagles eating <laughs> your liver every day. Yeah, it is kind of twenty twenty, but usually. it regenerates though. Yeah. So, but I mean, the I guess the the upshot of all this is that the that fire was extremely important to. The Greeks and and they showed it off as much. So when they started having Olympic games um, back in I guess seven seventy six BCE, yeah, um, they wanted to make fire kind of a prominent part of it, and so they 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 celebrated this theft. Of fire from Zeus by Prometheus by having a torch relay where there was basically like um like today's baton relay marathons or runs or whatever you call them, but it was with the torch. And whoever reached the end with their lit torch won that, that relay race. And that's how kind of the Olympic torch was born.
0: Yeah. And, the, you know, the games back then were a very big deal in that uh, they would stop war, yeah. which is something they loved to do just to take part in these games. And they had these runners, they called them heralds of peace, Mm -hmm. that would go all through Greece saying, you know, truce everybody, right? And they would hope they don't get speared. And (laughs) if they made it through, that truce would remain all during the Olympics uh, until the flame is extinguished, and then they start spearing again immediately.
1: Yeah, and the point was so that anybody who wanted to go watch the Olympics could make it through Greece um, unkilled. To go watch and then make it back home <laughs> unkilled, hopefully, too. Unkilled. Yep.
0: Uh, so if you go back to Olympia, there was an altar there uh, dedicated to Hera, who's the goddess of birth and marriage. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of those first Olympic Games, they would ignite a cauldron at Hera's altar. And they would light it with a with a parabolic mirror. They call it a, a scaphia. And it's sort of like, you know, an Archimedes death ray where you – or a magnifying glass or something where you focus the sun down to that, you know, single spot. If you're a sadistic child, you burn ants that way. You should never ever do that. No, It's not nice.
1: No, leave the ants alone. Leave
0: the ants alone. But they would – that's how they would ignite that initial flame and that flame, the idea is that it stays lit throughout the Olympics.
1: Yeah, so – This is a pretty cool tradition if you think about it. I mean, just because the Olympics have been around for so long today, the modern Olympics, we kind of take this whole thing for granted. But, like, this is a pretty neat tradition that that I guess just came up out of whole cloth among the Greeks. Yeah, And and so they were like, we're going to keep this going. And they did for another thousand years while they did the Olympics. But then when the Olympics kind of died out after a millennia, um, no, millennium, the, the the torch and all of that stuff died out with it. Fortunately, the Greeks were a highly literate society, and they wrote a lot of this stuff down. And um, it was rediscovered when the Olympics were revived in the 19th century by a guy named Baron Pierre de Coubertin. <laughs> and he, um, one of the things that he did was to say, um, I really love the Olympic Games, I'm not necessarily aware that there was a torch relay or anything like that. So um, we're going to wait another 30 years or so before we introduce the torch again.
0: That's right. That came in 1928 in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. And there they had the cauldron on fire on purpose. But there was they weren't relaying that torch still. It took till 1936 in Berlin when uh, Karl Diem, he was the secretary general of the uh, organizing committee of the of the games there mm-hmm. and he said hey guys we got to bring this back to to the ogs and we got to get that torch relay going and we got to light it in olympia and get it here to berlin we got to do it right
1: yeah he definitely did it right for sure i mean not only was like the whole thing revived like the idea of the torch relay but igniting that torch in Greece, and then make having it make its way all the way to Berlin. That's pretty cool stuff. And from what I read, that was also right up the Nazis' alley, <laughs> in that it kind of connected the Third Reich to the the great Greek and Roman empires um, of yore, which they were super into to try to legitimize themselves. Um, so they went for it. Fortunately, that first Olympic torch, uh, which we'll talk more about the torches. Um, it did not have a swastika anywhere on it, which is wonderful that they managed to keep that off of there. I know that's kind of surprising too, huh? It is extremely surprising i but I mean, I mean it really is genuinely surprising, mm-hmm. and I'm like very pleased. I was really pleased I looked at pictures of that torch it, with like one eye closed and just I trying to the find the other a side, just like no, no, just <laughs> i w- I was afraid I was going to yeah, see sure. it, and I couldn't believe it, and little by little, I was like, it's not there, so <laughs> I was pleased by that you have it my eyes. My eyes. (laughs) I just turned into Toth from the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark and melt. So uh, the relay
0: at the Winter Olympics, uh, I think it took until 1952 to introduce it at the Winter Games. And they did not light it in Olympia that year. They lit it in Norway because that's where the skiing was born. So they thought they would honor Norway in that way. Mm -hmm. But finally, finally, in 1964 in Austria, at Innsbruck, they said, we got to get it together, everybody. We got to get on the same page. Mm-hmm. We got to go winter and summer and start it out in Olympia and relay that thing to wherever the heck we're going to have these games.
1: That's right. And they did. And I, I, I actually looked a little bit into the, I guess, the 1952 games where um, they lit it in Norway. They lit it in the hearth of the home of 19th century Norwegian skiing legend Sandra Norheim. It's either Sandra or Sondre, S-O-N-D-R-E. And he was apparently quite the daredevil skier. I saw a quote about him that he was fearless and daring. He ran straight down the most dangerous and challenging hills, rudely waving his cap. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Which just made me love that guy immediately.
0: Yeah, and I think those games ended up in Helsinki. Mm-hmm. But, Be- well, there's a little nugget I'll drop in the next uh, segment here after we break.
1: Oh, I can't wait. Well, I've got another segment or another nugget on that. This, there One other time in history when the Winter Olympic Torch, was lit in the hearth of the home of 19th century Norwegian skiing legend Sondry Norheim, was in Squaw Valley in 1960 because the Olympic Committee couldn't get their act together fast enough to organize a lighting ceremony in Greece. So Norway stepped in again and said, She's got a fireplace. We've seen it in action. (laughs) He, he. Oh, he? Yeah, party at Sondry's house. All right. uh, I'm sure we're mispronouncing it. Probably so. Rudely waving his cap. You want to take a break yet? Let's do it. All right, everybody, we're going to take a break and we're going to come back. And guess what? We're going to talk about Olympic torches some more. Chuck. So let's talk about um, those RFPs that thrill me so fully.
0: (laughs) Yeah. If you want to be the the firm, the design firm that builds, uh, designs and builds the torch, you got to get in there and you got to submit your proposal. You got to grease some palms. You you (laughs) got to tip the right doorman, if
1: you know what I mean. You have to, you have to, Spread many goats around. That's right. To the right people.
0: No, I think you just submit a proposal and the Olympic Committee looks at it. And they sort of sit there like at uh, the beginning of planes, trains, and automobiles for three hours in silence. Kind of twiddling their thumbs, looking, looking, looking. And finally they say, the bid goes to you. You win the assignment. You've got to have a torch that looks great uh of course and you've got to have a torch that works because this thing has got a it's got to stay lit under any condition it can be you can get this thing through a hurricane supposedly and it'll have to stay lit
1: yeah i mean they're pretty serious about this thing not going out um so they build in redundancies um oftentimes there's a couple of different flames working in conjunction to to make this thing work um but in addition to the 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 actual feel of it and the look of it. Like, you want to make it so that anybody, anybody basically alive on Earth could carry it. So it's got to be lightweight, typically. Um, I saw usually about a pound or so. Um, it has to... Oh, is that all? Uh, most of the ones in that RFP, the golden RFP <laughs> for from the <laughs> London Olympics, it had a list. Actually, you got to look this up, everybody. I, I cannot remember. Just search... Um, London Olympic torch proposal design proposal. <laughs> I'll bet that would bring up this PDF anyway. The, some sleepy
0: corner of the internet, first.
1: Yeah, I, I found it, and I am proud <laughs> as, as punch about that. But um, it had a list of like some of the specs of past torches, and most of them seem to be around one to two pounds. This right. article from How Stuff Works is three to four, but I saw one to two pounds. Maybe that's without being fully loaded with fuel.
0: Sure, and hey, if you can carry something that's two pounds, you can probably put two hands on it and manage the four pounds.
1: Sure, sure.
0: Although they like you to hold it with one one hand.
1: Yeah, just because it looks cooler.
0: <laughs> uh, these these modern torches that we're looking at were sort of originated at those Squaw Valley Games in 1960 when a Disney artist mm-hmm. named John Hinch designed this. You know, sort of the first modern torch that everyone else said, yeah, that's a good idea. That's what we should do. We should have uh, fuel inside of it, and uh, we should have some backup flame inside of it. And they kind of function like a, like a camp stove.
1: Sure. A fancy camp stove basically is what it is.
0: In the, and we'll get into the fuels and stuff, but in that there is a liquid fuel that becomes a gas. Uh, you know, it's under pressure, and then it comes out these tiny little holes, just like a camp stove or a, like a Coleman lantern.
1: Yeah, and I, I didn't know this. This is pretty cool. Um, there are two two things that have to be designed into it. Well, a couple of things that have to be designed into it. Um, in, in addition to being um, easy to carry by basically anybody, it has to be very light. It has to be aerodynamic. Ergonomic, I think, is another. Sure. If you threw that word around in your bid, they would probably be like, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. <laughs> Um, but you, you also have to, at least as far as London was concerned, but I got the impression that this was a standard thing, that you have to design in a way to permanently deactivate it after its one-time use so that it can never be lit again, which I thought was kind of cool. I bet you could hack that though. Funny enough, I found another weird corner of the internet researching this one at olympictorchrepair.com, which is Possibly the most niche retail website I've ever seen in my life. They sell one part and it is a part designed to fix the 1996 Atlanta Olympic torch. And they don't use the words that it will be lit again. Right. But just from the pictures, Probably from the allowed. text, yeah. from everything that I'm seeing, I believe this is a rogue website dedicated to making 1996 Atlanta Olympic torches burn again after they've been purposefully disabled.
0: Well, and you might be laughing saying, how much could this person be making off this? But here's another little fun fact. There are anywhere from ten to 15,000 of these torches that are built. Uh, yeah. If you'll notice when you see these, you know, and they don't cover all of this thing, or maybe they do in some dark corner of the internet.
1: I'm sure somebody does. <laughs> I might end up doing it in the future as a hobby.
0: <laughs> Covers each and every passing of the torch, but they don't actually pass the torch. They light the other person's torch and then they run away. And then you never, th- the camera doesn't hang on the person who just, you know, is standing there with their torch. And you think, mm-hmm. what happens to those things? Mm-hmm. Well, you're allowed to buy it if you want. Uh, the one from Japan this year was going to cost about six hundred six hundred and fifty bucks American. That's a steal.
1: Have you seen that thing? Yeah, it's good looking. They're beautiful. Have you seen the overhead shot where it looks like a cherry blossom? It's wonderful. I think so too.
0: And that is a price uh, that's basically at cost because the A, the IOC, nor the AOC can profit from the sale. <laughs> of Olympic torches. That is not a side <laughs> hustle for her.
1: <laughs> no. so yeah, d- Don't believe what the right says. I know. <laughs> she can't actually make any money off of Olympic <laughs> torches. <laughs> so
0: um, that's basically cost. And uh, it turns out there's quite an aftermarket for these things, too. Uh, I think there are right now two complete collections for individuals in the world and another guy that's close and they cost anywhere from fifteen hundred to four thousand for the newer ones, mm-hmm. fifteen to seventy grand for older ones, and I think the priciest ever was that nineteen fifty two Helsinki one. How much? Eight hundred and eighty thousand dollars.
1: Oh boy! Uh,
0: because they only made twenty two of them, so obviously rarity is is going to drive that price up.
1: The highest I saw was less than that. Is two hundred and fifteen thousand for the nineteen sixty Squaw Valley one. Oh yeah, That Disney designer made. Um, And I think I saw, like, they made a 100 of them. So, you'd have to have some coin to to have a complete collection.
0: And that's a very niche collection as well. I mean, more power to you,
1: but. And I have to say, like, a lot of them, you just, they're not very pleasing to the eye. Yeah. There's some UGG Olympic torches (laughs) out there. I mean, Mexico City 1968 is, if it's not a hand whisk, I don't know what it is. (laughs) Well, it's homey, maybe. It is. And it was cool. It actually, uh, according to the 2012 London Olympics uh, torch RFP PDF. (laughs) (laughs) That you now have
0: framed on your wall. That
1: is the longest. I'm making t-shirts out of different pages. That is the longest burning Olympic torch in the history of Olympic torches. Most of these things are designed to burn 10 or 15 minutes, which is alarming if you're like, well, wait a minute, we don't want the Olympic flame to to, to burn out. But as we'll see, these relays are actually super short. Um, this one, the Mexico City 1968 torch, could burn up to 30 minutes. Dude, I like this torch. The whisk? I
0: think it looks great.
1: Huh. I think it looks like a whisk. I don't think it looks bad. I just think it looks like a kitchen whisk, and I can't think of anything else but... Whipping cream. When I look at it, I'm looking
0: at two different torches, though, for Mexico. One looks like a whisk, and one looks like uh, sort of like a, an Aztec club. So,
1: there's two torches.
0: I don't know. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to get to the bottom of this. Okay.
1: Because I'm seeing well, two torches. Let me know what you find. Because I'm gonna have to <laughs> add it to my niche website about <laughs> Olympic torches. Oh goodness. So. um I don't remember where we were going with that. Oh, you're talking about the Tokyo one where you can buy it. Yeah, so sure. When you, you when you have the torch, when your torch relay is done, it's taken from you, disabled, put in its packaging, and then presented to you if you've indicated you want to buy it. And if not,
0: they throw it into the nearest river. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
1: But that, I think that's pretty cool that you can you get to buy it if you want to, and it's disabled so you can never light it again unless you know the guy who <laughs> right. runs Olympic torch repair. But one of the other things too that they they has become kind of a thing, especially in the last like thirty thirty years or maybe more, is sustainability built into these, and you want to. It's not a requirement, but I get the impression from that, that RFP. <laughs> thats exactly where I got it from—that <laughs> you you're probably doing nothing but helping your bid if you have figured out some sort of sustainable angle to it, like the Tokyo torch, which again is just gorgeous. It's rose gold looking, but it's actually aluminum, and the aluminum is made from former temporary housing that was used after the Fukushima disaster to house some of the residents who'd been displaced. They're they really this, pulling at
0: the heartstrings there.
1: Yeah. Yes. I'm sure the person who designed that was like, I got it. I got the thing that's going to get, we're going to win this bid with this. And they're like,
0: is it true? No, but they don't know.
1: Well, I made it up. <laughs> no, I shoot down airplanes in my spare time. I have a bunch of them in my backyard.
0: Now I know what to do with them. I like the view from the top better. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Than the
1: side. Yes, and one of the things I mean, we talked about flames and and them being redundant. Um, the 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 you don't want that flame to go out. So one of the things that 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 twenty twenty torch has is from each of those rounded petals that looks like the petal of a cherry blossom flower uh, provides a flame, and they all come together to 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 build one big flame. Yeah. But because you have five different smaller flames, that big flame, even if it flickers or wanes, it's never going to go out. Yeah, you've got five redundancies. Exactly. So
0: the fuel, they've used a bunch of things over the years because you want something to burn uh, bright, something that you can see during the daytime. Uh, You want something that's not dangerous. Uh, But there have been some dangerous torches over the years. They've used gunpowder. They've used olive oil. uh, They used to use something called hexamine, which is formaldehyde and
1: ammonia can't be safe and uh <laughs> naphthalene so in our soap episode chuck one of the things i didn't get to talk about was that fells naphtha laundry soap yeah you ever seen that stuff i don't think so it's like this hipsterific laundry soap that's old-timey that they still make but naphtha is benzene and it's actually really, really bad for you, so they were basically burning benzene in this stuff, and you can all sorts of bad things can happen like your red blood cells can rupture,
0: yeah, that's no good. Uh, you can also <laughs> have nasty smoke, like in the case of Atlanta's was pretty smoky uh, in fifty six they had magnesium and aluminum uh, lighting the flame, and there were chunks of flame that fell off. so you don't want that either. You want something that burns clean. That looks good. I think now they use propane and butane, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, that's what you use in lighters and in gas grills. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, like I said, it works like a little, like a little camp stove. You've got this fuel being pushed through a valve. Uh, there's a fuel reservoir, and then you have all these little tiny openings just like a camp camp stove will mm-hmm. and once it squeezes through there it builds up that pressure then finally once it's out the other side that pressure drops it turns into a gas and it's ready to burn at a consistent rate
1: right and again there's a couple of flames typically one that burns really hot but small that is almost like a pilot light for the the bigger ones and that 2020 torch there's five of those things and then you've got the 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 bigger brighter flame that that is Big and bold, and just says, In your face, world, I'm the Olympic flame. Um, But it's much less stable. It flickers a lot more in the wind, but it's not going to go out because you got those pilot lights. It's sort of
0: like the understudy to the Broadway star.
1: Yeah, but. The understudy is really the one who's giving the, the star all of the suggestions and notes that are making the star a star.
0: <laughs> and uh, we'll get to the route here in a few minutes, but this thing, you know, goes a long way and sometimes even across oceans and sometimes underwater, mm-hmm. uh, which is what happened in 2000 uh, when it went across the Great Barrier Reef very symbolically. And they had a flare inside this thing to keep the flame burning uh, in the water, which is pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, it, uh, did you see video of that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I saw it live.
1: Oh, you did, huh? Sure. Oh, that's I'm an Olympics
0: I, guy. I love that stuff.
1: That's cool. Yeah, I didn't see that. I like the Olympics too. I don't know if I'd say I'm an Olympics guy. <laughs> okay, but I. But I, you're an I, Olympic I,
0: torch RFP guy.
1: <laughs> yeah, thank you. Go. That's way more at my alley. Yeah, than, than running around.
0: Should we take another uh, break?
1: Yeah, I think we've reached break time, if you ask me. All right, we'll
0: come back and we'll talk about lighting this thing and then and that big relay right after this. ¶¶
1: All right, Chuck, so we're back to talk about the actual lighting of this thing. And if you guys will remember, we talked about lighting the torch using a parabolic mirror to concentrate the sun's rays all the way back in the 770s BCE. Well, when the Olympic organizers of the modern Olympics started bringing the torch back, I guess what was his name, Carl Bernheim? Mm. (laughs) hmm I think so. The German guy from the nineteen thirty-six Olympics, I believe he had this. Like that's what he went right to it. He was also a sports historian, by the way, which gives away why he was so uh, so privy to all this stuff. But he, um, I I guess, since that time, every time we've lit a torch from Olympia, they have used a parabolic mirror to, to concentrate the sun's rays, and they stick a torch in there, and it catches flame, and then there you have the official Olympic flame that will make its way from Olympia to the host city somehow, some way.
0: Yeah, they make a big show of it. They have a, an actor dressed as a ceremonial priestess mm-hmm. in these robes and like the ancient Greeks, and they, you know, they act it out. And uh, the uh, for the Winter Games, they actually, uh, the relay begins at the monument to the guy who you spoke of earlier, Pierre de uh Cobotin. Mm-hmm. We founded those first games, but the summer games, uh, a.k.a. the other games, <laughs> are carried to a fire pot at that altar of, uh, was it Hera?
1: Yeah, Hera, Zeus's wife, sister, sister wife.
0: <laughs> and then the relay begins. And, you know, how this works out is determined at every Olympics. The uh, organizing committee determines the route uh, there's always some silly Olympic theme. Well, it's not always silly. Sometimes it's nice. But I'm, I'm not a big theme guy.
1: No, you didn't like the theme of the 1996 Olympics? <laughs> knew,
0: What's it? I knew you were going to bring that up. That was <laughs> the mascot. That wasn't the theme.
1: Oh, I thought it was both.
0: I think the theme was redneckery.
1: <laughs> it, was. <laughs> it was. The theme was get her
0: done. <laughs> I was looking online today because remember they had those, I've talked about them before, those stainless steel pickup trucks? Yeah in Atlanta and I was like where are those things now? Uh-huh. And I could find nary any evidence that they ever existed. So I don't know if they <laughs> scrub the internet. But uh I know you're better at the dark corners of the of the web, so maybe I see
1: what I can do. Can,
0: maybe we'll go in together and buy one.
1: That would be pretty awesome actually.
0: <laughs> so, you know, like I said, the route is determined by the committee. Um sometimes it goes from com- country to country on a plane, sometimes it's a train. Uh, there have been dog sleds. There's been motorcycles and horseback. And if you are a person who is uh, tasked with uh, carrying this thing, like I think you have to be able to go at least 437 yards, 400 meters. Mm-hmm. Got to be at least 14 years old. Mm-hmm. I would like to throw our name in the hat, quite frankly, for future Olympic Games.
1: <laughs> that'd be kind of neat.
0: That'd be fun. I'd be willing to carry it with you. We could each oh, put a hand on it. Yeah. But... um, you're, you know, you're, you've done something for the community, or you're a notable human being, yeah, or check. or you, or you work for the company who's sponsoring the Olympics,
1: <laughs> right? Right, you're a, you're a C level executive,
0: which is absolutely true. We're not kidding.
1: No, no, and I mean, like, there's sometimes hundreds, sometimes thousands of people who are involved in this because I mean, if if basically you're running, if you're running like a, a, a basically a football field and a half and you're going you're bringing you're taking this thing you That's know, thousands four football of kilometers <laughs> right you're like you need a lot of people to do that so there's a lot of people involved in the olympic relay so there's a lot of people who you know yeah just kind of ended up there because they you know they were a sponsor but there's also interesting people too there is sure in um sometimes they're not even people buddy i was looking at the Pyeongchang 2018 Winter Olympics relay. And there was a robot named Hubo who was a torch bearer. And Hubo not only carried the torch, Hubo drove the torch in, like, basically a, a doom buggy mm-hmm. with a human being in the passenger seat, and then got out, approached a brick wall, almost fell over, was righted by some other humans cut through the brick wall, and then pass the torch through the hole Hubo had cut into the brick wall. That's the level of zaniness that can be achieved with the with the torch relay because there's so many people involved.
0: Can you imagine being that guy? It's like, did you see the Olympics the other day in the torch relay? Oh, did you carry the torch? No, I rode in the doom buggy of the robot. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just looking very nervous. That was a fail safe, you know, in case he went nuts. <laughs>
1: It was pretty great. They 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 also did um paragliding. They paraglided. Oh yeah, I remember that one. The um the torch from one place to another. Um, it's pretty cool. Like people they try to outdo each other. Each host city tries to outdo the last. Um I think Montreal is the one that has has everybody beat. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, let me go on. So in 1976, Montreal hosted the Olympics, and they figured out how to take the flame, tr- transmit it into a radio signal. I'm still not sure how they did this. Shot that signal up to a satellite, and then beam the signal back down from a satellite to Canada, where it lit another cauldron, another torch. So they basically transferred the the energy from the Olympic flame, shot it into space, and then transferred it back to Earth and converted it back into flame. No one's ever going to beat that.
0: I think that's cute that you bought that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, well, okay. <laughs> I guess, yeah, I, I hadn't really thought about that.
0: You didn't see the guy. He was in the buggy. He was also behind there punching the button. Yeah, The that's relight a thing. button.
1: It is a thing for sure, <laughs> and I hadn't really thought about that.
0: So if you do notice these people that are actually on the street carrying these things, you'll notice they have security, there's actually a medical team, there's plenty of media, they have extra torches on hand because they don't want that thing to go out on camera. And eventually it's going to make its way to the Olympic Stadium where the big secret, you know, they keep it a big secret now who that final individual is going to be. Um, very uh, much kept a lid on because you don't want that getting out because that's the big moment. And that's always a big deal, whoever they choose, for that final person to light the cauldron. And there have been a lot of big, big moments uh, throughout the years. And I think Atlanta's, uh, when they came in there, Janet Evans, she didn't even know who she was going to hand it to. Mm -hmm. And out comes Muhammad Ali. That was really one of the great Olympic moments.
1: I watched it again today and I was like why am I crying? What so is wrong good. with me? Yeah. It is amazing to hear that crowd when they figure out who it is at first and apparently no one no one knew like um uh maybe it was Costas who was doing the Probably Costas, yeah. I think it was cuz he hadn't gotten pink eye that year. <laughs> so he was still good to good to that. be the commentator. Um it was Costas and somebody else and they 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 didn't know apparently. Um and I guess Dick Ebersole, who was a, a longtime NBC executive. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever read that book live from New York about Saturday Night Live? No, but scenes? I
0: knew that he was uh, he took over for a little while.
1: Yeah, he, he figures big in there. And I can't remember if he did a good job or a bad job, but I, I have a good impression of him. So I think he did get. But anyway, um, he figures big into that book. And that book is definitely worth reading. It like goes up to maybe the mid to late 80s from the start to the mid to late 80s, okay. and it's all just like behind-the-scenes interviews and gossip and oral history of of the whole thing. It's really interesting. But anyway, Dick Ebersol lobbied really hard to, to get Muhammad Ali to be the guy because it was originally going to be Evander Holyfield. Yeah. And Holyfield actually ran it for about 10 feet and then handed it off to Janet Evans. Yeah,
0: they had to get him in there.
1: Yeah, and then Janet Evans took it up this ramp, and then all of a sudden, it looks like Janet Evans is going to be the one to light it. And then all of a sudden, at the top of the ramp, Muhammad Ali pops out. And And he punches Janet Evans in the face. (laughs) 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 And the the crowd just goes nuts. They're like, he's still got it. Yeah, especially when he when he has it lit and he like holds it aloft oh, and his man. hand is trembling from, from with Parkinson's yeah. tremors, and um, they just are going bonkers. It was it's just like you said is probably the the all time great Olympic moment as far as America's is concerned.
0: Uh, a few other highlights in Barcelona '92. Who can forget uh, Paralympic archer Antonio Rebolo. That's a great when one when he too. shot
1: that fiery arrow. Uh, that was pretty sweet. I can't believe he made it, too. Like, the, just the, 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 what they gambled on that, you know? He could have missed. It could have gone out, and it didn't. And he made it, and it lit the cauldron, and it was just beautiful.
0: Well, it actually didn't light the cauldron, but that was the... <laughs>
1: <laughs> Please stop dashing my there was, Olympic torch fantasy. was an
0: ignition button, because you can't take that chance. Uh... <laughs>
1: You know, I'll tell you what, Chuck. When I form my weird niche little Olympic torch Uh website, (laughs) Am I going to be blocked? (laughs) It's going to be all fantasy. None of this behind-the-scenes... Trickery. (laughs) ...grittiness. It's it's just going to be face value stuff.
0: Uh, 64, Tokyo, uh, when they hosted their first games, they had the Hiroshima baby, uh, a.k.a. uh, Yohanori Sakai was born on august sixth, nineteen forty five, the day Americans dropped the nuclear bomb on Hiroshima. Mm-hmm. He was nineteen years old at the time. He lit that thing. What about the uh, soul and those cooked doves?
1: That was rough, man. I did I wasn't aware of that until we were researching this. Were you?
0: I don't remember that. I mean, I I certainly watched the games that year, but uh, I was probably too young to understand that those doves did not make it out alive.
1: Dude, it's, yeah, I I put my hand in my mouth like, oh, my God, I I can't believe what I just saw. That was awful. But they, so they released the doves as part of the opening ceremony. And then some of the doves gathered in the cauldron. (laughs) And... It's not funny.
0: I don't know why I'm laughing.
1: No, it's, 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 well, there's a certain element to it that's funny, but in the worst way, you know what I mean? and the the three people whose job it was to light the Olympic cauldron with their torches, they did, and some of the birds didn't fly away,
0: yeah, and you can see some of them sort of dancing in the flame
1: it's it's that part's awful, but the the whole idea of the thing is just so preposterous and it contrary to what they're trying to do with the Olympic spirit that they <laughs> they sacrificed some doves,
0: yeah, that was uh tough to watch,
1: so then um there's one more. Well, there's a bunch worth mentioning, uh, but uh, worth watching again is uh, Lillehammer 1994, where um, Stein Gruben, a uh, ski jumper, skis down a ski jump 70 meters, which is quite a few feet, more than 70 meters. Well, it's the exact same as 70 meters, but in feet. Um, just going at some ridiculous speed with the torch that won't go out and g- like lands this jump just beautifully
0: that was a little nerve-wracking so, even knowing that it didn't go out when i was watching it the other day i was like don't go out don't go out
1: <laughs> right yeah because it, it was it looks like it could have at any moment but no it stayed stayed straight and then let's see there's a couple more mentioning 1996 2000 and 2014 the flame went to space which is pretty cool let's not forget 1976 in Montreal and then um, it was on the Concorde once it flew on the Concorde and I believe 1992 for the Barcelona games amazing so that's it for the Olympic torch everybody we'll talk more about the Olympics someday when we do an episode on the Olympics but in the meantime hope you enjoyed this Uh, and since I said that it's time for Listener Man
0: Uh, I'm going to call this Chuck, Check Your Privilege. Did you see (laughs) this this one? one? Yeah. Hey, guys. This is in reference to your wasp podcast. Great information. Loved the podcast, but at the end it was almost amusing that you assumed people have the means to hire a professional to remove a wasp nest from their property. I said almost. (laughs) Almost amusing. Equally amusing, which I guess is equally almost amusing, Mm -hmm. is the idea of fashioning a kind of trap I don't remember that part. Did you say that?
1: I don't know. I say a lot of things.
0: Uh, risk being stung dozens of times? For what? Uh, guys, I don't think you should be shoving PETA-style, in quotes, non-lethal rhetoric down people's throats, Nay, saying the killing of vermin and pests, especially when your solutions don't accommodate outside the middle class. Pretty sure there are poverty-stricken individuals that love to learn and love this podcast as well. You very well could be unintentionally alienating them into thinking that they are being inhumane when, in fact, they have no choice. Think bigger picture, Chuck. That is from uh, James Huggins. <laughs> I didn't mean to do that, James. I'm sorry. I I, I think the overarching message was leave it alone. Don't mm-hmm. do anything to it. Don't spend mm-hmm. money. I've never paid money to have a waspist removed.
1: Do you, do you know, Chuck, I have to tell you, just yesterday, I was challenged to, to live up to my own words, and there was a wasp in uh, our screen porch, and I had a fly swatter and was trying to just lightly move it out, and I was like, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to kill you. And he's like, and I know what that thing is. He wouldn't, number one, he wouldn't come after me, so we proved that wasps are not necessarily super aggressive like they have um, a, a reputation for. right. But then he would—he also wouldn't make his way toward the open door, right? Mm-hmm. So I thought of this ingenious method. I grabbed like a little bowl, which virtually anyone on earth can afford. <laughs> put the bowl over the wasp yeah. so that it was trapped between the bowl and the screen. Then I took the flash water and I slid it up between the bowl and the screen to create a cover for the bowl. And then ran that thing right out of the porch, removed the flash water from the bowl and the wasp flew away like have a good day.
0: Amazing. That's Emily's method. That she gets like a magazine and a like a Tupperware. Yeah, for kind of it any beast.
1: Works pretty well. Yeah, and uh, that's not elitist. <laughs> no, it's not. I like. I don't disagree with James's overall message. I think it was more his delivery that's a little, you know, <laughs> you know, needs work. All. Sure. <laughs> okay. So uh, if you want to get in touch with us, and we can. We can do what we will with your email. Um, you can send it to us at stuffpodcasts at iheartradio.com.
0: Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeart Radio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeart Radio, visit the iHeart Radio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.